This is an audio excerpt from my book, The Unseen, which is a novel which was released about a month ago. And I am planning to do an audiobook. And before starting the process of this great big project, I wanted to do a couple of sample chapters just to see how it feels and see how it's working. What you're about to listen to is the end of chapter six and the entirety of chapter seven. What I need to note is that I snipped out a tiny bit of material that uh, I, I just didn't want to give too much away in the overall plot. There's lots of things that might be considered spoilers. Those are not in there. This is not much more than a few sentences. I should set you up a little bit on what's happening here, and what you'll be listening to is essentially the first-person narration of the internal dialogue of the main character. Uh, he has what uh, is sort of a crisis of, let's say, faith, and ends up walking alone in the desert. The opening line in this dialogue is him getting water from a pothole in the desert. Now, a pothole in southern Utah, in that part of the world, is simply a dish shape that collects water. That's explained a little bit earlier, but he basically dips his water bottle in a dish shape in some rock. And that's how it begins. And he's on a sort of spiritual walkabout where he is looking back on his life. This audio excerpt was recorded and edited on Thursday, June 15th, 2023. Please enjoy. I found another pothole and drank as much as I could. It was wide and shallow, and the water was warm from yesterday's heat. I topped off my bottle and kept moving. Before long, the sun was brutal, and my pace slowed. Even though the sandstone walls were high, the canyon floor was too wide to offer much shade. The dry river bottom snaked between jumbled boulders choked with thorny bushes. That forbidding mess meant getting up to the canyon walls would be a struggle. There were some overhanging cliffs against the wall, and I wanted the shade, but I didn't have the energy to fight my way up there. There were barely any shadows, so it must have been about noon. My superstitious grandparents would whisper about the witching hour, the darkest time of the night when the demons would have their power. Yet I've heard in desert cultures the spirits come out at noon, in that searing moment of helplessness under the sun. Ahead of me, along the dry river, stood a tall, crooked boulder. I looked up at the wall behind it, trying to fit the big blocky shape into the sections of fractured vertical terrain. That huge chunk of rock came from somewhere, and I tried to visualize how that giant puzzle piece might click into place in the grand expanse of sandstone. I've played this little game a lot over the years, but never once managed to figure out how any big block in the ground would fit into the wall above. I've scrutinized and hoped, but that isn't enough. I got closer to the rock, and there was something nice about its shape and how it stood. Walking past, I saw the side that had been hidden from me. It was slightly overhanging and stained with a dark patina. It was a deep, warm brown, almost black. It was a nice example of what gets called desert varnish. Then I saw the petroglyphs. I moved closer and stood in the small pool of shade. There were antelopes, spirals, and a tortoise. Each image was rusty orange against the darker surface of the stone. 
I've seen a lot of ancient rock carvings, and each time I felt the same sense of awe. Someone had used a simple stone chisel and carefully tapped away the dark, shiny surface and made these little images. They stood right where I was standing and created something beautiful. I understood this. The rock was quite a bit taller than me and about the size of a backyard shed. The little carvings were a bit below my eye level on the overhanging north side and had been protected from the sun for maybe a thousand years. I stepped back into the sunshine and slowly walked around the boulder, looking for any more images. There was nothing to find, and after circling all the way around, I sat in the shade and marveled at the artwork. I took off my pack and lay down on my back and faced the rock. I set my hat on my stomach and slid my pack under my head as a pillow. It was a relief to be out of the sun, and the sand felt cool under my hands. This was a magical spot, and whoever created these pictures must have felt it too. I was lying in a sacred place. I said, thank you. Archaeologists would say the rock art in this country was done by the Anasazi, but I never heard Donnie use that term. He simply called them the ancestors. I've listened to people who claim they can decipher the images, like an Egyptologist reading hieroglyphs. Some make a pretty good case, but I really don't know what to think. I do know what I feel, that this is art and it's beautiful. Lying in sand is comforting, and I was drifting off to sleep when a sound broke the silence. It was a steady tink, 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 at first I thought it was a bird pecking at something. There was no wind, and I heard it clearly. It was hypnotic and seemed close. I listened for a long time. I was curious, and when I sat up, the sound stopped. I got up and looked around, but there was nothing. I scanned the area to find an animal that might have been digging, but everything was so still. I put on my hat stepped out of the shade, and walked around the rock again. When I got to the backside, I stopped. There was a little petroglyph about three feet above the sand. I knelt down to see a small image of an owl. This didn't make sense. Minutes before, I had searched the rock for any other carvings, and there was no way I would have missed this. The images on the other side, where I had been laying, were faded and ancient but this little owl seemed new. The black patina had been carefully chipped away to expose the lighter sandstone below. But more than anything, I was struck by its delicate beauty. The outline was stylized, yet very simple. Then I did something I had never done before. I touched the image. I gently ran my fingertips over the owl's big eyes. These were dark circles of smooth varnish that had been left by a master. For some reason, I felt uneasy. I stood up and looked behind me. I expected to see someone, but I was alone. I waited for a long time. The silence had a loneliness to it, and this was somehow comforting. There was nothing to do. I walked around to where I had been lying, picked up my pack, gave the rock a gentle pat, and continued walking. 
Chapter 7 Later that day, I walked through a long, shady stretch of the same canyon, and the route narrowed between smooth, overhanging walls. I passed around a corner and found myself in a beautiful amphitheater of sculpted sandstone. The sound of my footsteps crunching in the gravel echoed back at me, ringing clear in the still air. I stopped and waited for the noise to settle down to silence. I faced the wall and said, Hello. There was a lovely resonance as that one word bounced around me for the next few seconds. I don't have much of a voice, but I'll often sing while hiking. There are a few songs I do okay with, and if I walk with someone, I'll sometimes sing the refrain from The Lonesome Valley. The Kingston Trio did a song called The Reverend Mr. Black, and so did Johnny Cash. I had both versions on a mixtape of country music that I lost years ago. This was a corny cowboy ballad with a repeating chorus lifted from a traditional gospel hymn, and something about it always unnerved me. I found out later this was a folk standard, and pretty much everyone did a version of it, including Woody Guthrie, who sang it with a bunch of his own lyrics. My singing voice is sort of wavering and slow, especially if I'm walking. I sang that song enough with others around to know that it could create a spooky mood. I'd do my best to play up the drama, hoping to get a reaction. I took a deep breath and sang to the wall. You gotta walk that lonesome valley. You gotta walk it by yourself. Lord, nobody else can walk it for you. You gotta go there by yourself. There are more lyrics, but I stopped there. Those shaky words echoed round and round and were slowly swallowed by the ever-present silence. Parts of this canyon felt like the eeriest place I had ever been. About a decade earlier, I walked into the Great Gallery. It was over four hours of highway driving from Moab, then 30 miles on a terrible road, and about four miles of easy walking in a beautiful canyon. That day was miserably hot, and I sat in the shade of an overhang and ate pineapple chunks out of a can. I found a few tiny pictographs along the way. Then I turned a corner, and there it was. I wasn't prepared for the power of what I saw. I stood before a wide wall protected by an overhanging roof. The images were enormous. There were a series of ghostly overlapping figures, tall with long robes and odd helmets. I had seen plenty of pictures of this sight in books, but standing alone in their presence was haunting. The rust-colored figures loomed above the canyon floor, and I saw a small ledge below this wall of huge images. I scrambled up and walked along the bottom of these amazing works. Up close, you could see there were layers upon layers of other images that had faded over the centuries. The soaring ghost figures were painted on top of a collage of smaller antelopes, lizards, spirals, and chiseled dot patterns. Whoever painted these mammoth images had used this same narrow ledge and it was impossible for me to stand there and not feel a powerful kinship with the artists who had created something so rich in mood. 
This is hard to describe, but I went through a kind of vivid daydream, almost like deja vu. I took off my shoes and walked barefoot along the ledge. It was as if I could remember building ladders and mixing the pigments for the paints used above me. I know what it means to create a piece of art and how it can take on a sort of obligation. But what I felt on that ledge was different. It was a kind of reverence. There was a need to honor something elusive, a mystical quality that could only be shared through art. I paced back and forth along that ledge, and the echoes of the past rolled through me. It felt inspiring, at first anyway. There was something else, a sadness, and it made me uneasy. I wanted to stay longer, but couldn't. This was not an easy place to be, so I climbed back down to the canyon floor and walked out. I was now hundreds of miles and more than a decade away from that sacred canyon, yet it still whispered in my ear. I tried to listen, to understand, to feel what it wanted to tell me, but its voice was too quiet, even in this empty place. There has always been a need in me, an urge to create, but it can be fleeting, and when it's gone I feel lost. At times in my life, the weight of being uninspired could crush me. It can be so hard to trust my own creativity. It's impossible to point to, or define, or understand. But it is there. It's in me. Trying to be an artist means battling doubt, the indecision of my own ideas. Are they worthy? Why should I trust putting paint on a canvas? Who do I think I am? As a child, drawing was a way to get some praise, to be the center of attention. A kid in elementary school has permission to show off. Some kids are funny, and some can hit a baseball over a fence. There's nothing wrong with being proud of these things. I was always drawing, and I was good at it. I loved it, and I remember seeing my obsessive sketching pay off. I was getting better. I could see my skills improve. But now, I fight with what is a skill and what is inspiration. I am skilled with looking at something and then drawing it with some flair. But is that skillful rendering inspired? Where is the magic spark? I have asked myself these questions all my life. Or maybe it's better to say, all my adult life. For me, right now, it's gone. I am skilled, I know that, but I am uninspired. And that emptiness is unbearable. As a boy, drawing meant white paper and a pen with black ink. My dad would bring these pads of paper home from work. They were maybe five by eight inches, and they were sacred to me. Each white page had infinite potential. I still feel that, and feel it deeply. Even now, a single sheet of white paper is something holy. I remember sitting at Katie Kelly's kitchen table with one of those pads, a pencil, and a fine line black pen. She would say, lion, and I would do a quick sketch with a pencil 
just a few lines and barely touching the paper. I would set down my pencil and use that light outline as a way to frame the ink of the pen. Katie didn't know it, but I had been drawing lions from pictures in National Geographic. I'd also been drawing eagles and whales and pine trees and mountains, so I was ready for almost anything she'd ask of me. This was a time when my skills were minimal, but my inspiration was on fire. Katie's older sister would babysit for us. They lived across the street from me, so we spent a lot of time in each other's homes. Katie had bright red hair and freckles, and I could tease her. We were the same age, so we walked to school together, had classes together, rode bikes together, and looked at the stars together. Katie would sit close and watch me draw, and this was joyous. I used that energy to keep me going through the low points of my life, and it worked. I would hit a wall, feel helpless and insecure about my work, and I could tap into that feeling that my gift had a power to it. Yet, as the years went on, this got harder and harder, and finally, it was impossible. When burdens overwhelmed me, I could think about the frog pond. This was a pressure valve. Some awful thing would well up in my life, and I would think about climbing the oak tree and jumping off that huge arm of a branch. The water was green and cool, and every summer seemed to last a thousand lifetimes. All the kids from the neighborhood could swim and jump. We'd see who could stay underwater and hold their breath the longest. Or someone would find a big, creepy spider, and we'd dare each other to touch it. And there were all kinds of frogs, from giant bullfrogs to tiny tree frogs, small as an M&M. In the spring and summer, those frogs were so loud we could hear them from our front porch. The pond was visited by blue jays, red cardinals, and big woodpeckers. I remember seeing a fox. I was all alone at the pond when I saw it, and nobody believed me, but I saw it. This funny little pond was surrounded by cattails and mud, but there was one perfect section of sand where we could wade into the water. This corner had tall grass along the little beach and was shaded by huge arcing maple trees. There must have been a spring under this sandy corner because the water was always cold and clear, yet it was green and cloudy everywhere else. There was a path from Katie Kelly's backyard to the frog pond. You'd go through a gate in a tall wooden fence and be at the water in a few minutes. Kids from the neighborhood would use that gate all the time. Katie's parents knew we were at the pond, and they were okay with that, but it always felt a little sneaky going through their backyard. I remember they would yell at us from the kitchen window if it was getting dark, telling us we should go home. The last time I swam in the frog pond was the night before I left for college. That night, I snuck out the back door and went behind Katie Kelly's old house. The new owners locked the gate, but I hopped over and walked that long path without a flashlight. It had been a hot, miserable summer, and the water was warm. I didn't swim for very long, but it felt important to be there. I forgot to bring a towel, and I lay in the grassy spot, looking up through the trees, waiting in the dark to dry. I wasn't sure what it all meant, but I knew I would never be coming back. 
The next morning, I hugged my parents, got in that old truck, and left for art school. I dropped out at the end of my second semester and started driving around out west. I loved that spot so dearly, and I wish Katie would have gone there too. I don't know why she never did. I mean, it was right out her back door, and I know she would have loved it. The frog pond is part of my nightmare. Yet it's never the pond, it's the path behind Katie's house. This conflict has been difficult for me. My most cherished memories are tangled up with something harrowing, but I couldn't let the joys of that place get stained by the demons of my sleep. Walking helped me escape my mind, and I needed that. I spent the rest of the daylight trying to focus on the beautiful memories and ignoring the nightmare. It took some effort, but in the end, joy and beauty won out. When it was too dark to walk, I found a flat spot and slept. This is Mike chiming in after the excerpt. I do want to say that uh, having listened to this a few times during the editing process, I got too whispery. That's kind of a flaw in how I will eventually record this. Uh, It is very easy to sit alone in a room and read what amounts to dramatic text, and then you slowly get more and more whispery. Uh, I do not plan on doing that for the final book. This is merely a test so I can find the voice of this audiobook. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.